everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 323 for May 8th, 2023, and we've got a lot of news to cover. I've got so many, so many things I want to talk about today. I'm going to really have to kind of speed things up to get through it all. Before we start, though, a couple quick things that I want to cover. First of all, I talked last time about juice jacking and how to avoid that, and I just wanted to reiterate, that is probably not a common thing. I, I don't think it's a high risk. However, it's also very easy to avoid, which is which was kind of my point. So, I, you know, I hope I didn't make it sound super scary. I mean, it could be, right? I mean, if you get hacked that way, that's not a good thing. But how likely is it that some random port at an airport or, or if a taxi driver is going to try to hack your phone? I, I don't know. Probably not very high. But the point is, there's just no reason to even take that risk. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that in case that wasn't clear. Also wanted to note uh, from a recent show where I talked about the Facebook settlement where you could apply to get some money. Uh, even though I did it, I basically did it just so I could learn what it was all about so you guys don't have to. I honestly don't think it's worth it. You're going to maybe get 10 bucks. I'm just guessing. I mean, if you're lucky and you're going to have to give away a lot of information to get that. And that information is not going to Facebook. I mean, you might be thinking, well, Facebook has that information anyway. Why, why do I care if I give that information up again. Well, you're giving it to a third party and who knows what that third party is going to do with that information. So it honestly, it's, it's, it's not worth it. I mean, do it if you want to do it just for maybe on principle, but just realize that you're going to probably be giving your information to some third party who will turn around and probably monetize it again, ironically, and you're probably not going to get anything significant out of that. A couple quick security notes, Apple, Google, and Microsoft have all released important security updates, so make sure you keep your devices updated. I mean, that's you should be doing that all the time, but there are some bad bugs that they just fixed that you want to make sure you get fixed. Also, very specifically, if you happen to have a TP-Link Archer AX21 or an AX1800 router, be sure to update your firmware because there is a, a fix for an actively exploited vulnerability that you definitely want. There's a link in the show notes for that. If you happen to have that specific router, check the link in the show notes for information. All right, we have a lot to cover today. Just real quick preview. Uh, one password sent out a rather scary message to its users, but it turned out it was no big deal. There's a new Mac OS Steeler malware running around that you want to be careful about. Lifehacker has an interesting article about five things that scammers are hoping you will Google. Microsoft Edge is leaking what sites you visit to Bing, aka Microsoft. Microsoft's Windows version 10 will never be updated again, or at least not in terms of features. Also, Microsoft is busy rewriting a lot of the core Windows code using a memory safe language. I'll tell you why that's important. Somebody released a study about bad passwords again, and it made a lot of headlines because, you know, the, the the one that made it into all the headlines was some version of 83% of all passwords can be cracked within one second. Of course, that's not exactly true. I'll tell you what that's about. Google has made another step forward in its passwordless secure sign-in uh, with uh, support for pass keys. Apple has released a rapid security response for the first time officially ever. Police in New York are actually giving away free air tags to help crack down on car theft. And in a similar story, Apple and Google have partnered to create an industry specification to address unwanted tracking by things like air tags. Google has finally added cloud synchronization to its Google Authenticator app, but unfortunately they did not use end-to-end -end encryption with that, which has all sorts of problems. I've got yet another article about an online healthcare company. Uh, this one now being offered by Amazon called Amazon Clinic. And I'm going to tell you why you do not want to sign up for that. And then I was going to read like three different articles around banning of social media and banning encryption. But honestly, we're not going to have time to get into all that. So instead, I will just kind of give you some highlights of those articles and point you at them if you want to read more. I do, however, have my tip of the week and I will tell you how to block those really annoying Google sign-in pop-ups that have been coming up a lot lately. And turns out the technique that you can use to do that has all sorts of other great benefits too. So lots to talk about. Let's get to it. All right. So I've got a lot of things to cover. First up, this is from Digital Trends. 
Uh, and it's about 1Password. If you are a 1Password user, you may have gotten a rather disturbing message from them recently, and it turns out it was really not a big deal. So the article says, password managers have been struggling with security breaches in recent months, with LastPass suffering a particularly bad hack as a notable example. So when 1Password users got an alert last week saying their secret keys and passwords had been changed without their knowledge, they were understandably panicked. Luckily, all was not what it seemed. That's because AgileBits, the company behind 1Password, has just explained exactly what went wrong during that event. And while it wasn't as bad as everyone first thought, it still doesn't paint AgileBits in a particularly good light. In a blog post on the 1Password website, the company's chief technology officer, Pedro Kanahuati, explained that the incident occurred shortly after a period of planned maintenance was completed. After the maintenance work finished, and this is a quote from Kanahati, quote, our service received an unexpected spike in sync requests from client devices to the servers, unquote. The CTO clarified that when that happened, quote, Users received a message indicating that their secret key or password had changed, unquote. More specifically, 1Password servers in the U.S. sent an error code to users' apps, which those apps interpreted incorrectly, leading to the worrisome message. Fortunately, the CTO noted that no user passwords or secret keys had been changed and that all user data was safe throughout the incident. The CTO said that 1Password will analyze what went wrong and, quote, refine our migration process and error handling and ensure that we properly plan for these scenarios in the future, unquote. So long story short, if you got a message that, that sounded like the one I just mentioned, never fear, everything's fine. It was uh, basically a mistake. It was some weird error code that your app misinterpreted and gave you a scary message, but it turns out everything was just fine. So basically false alarm. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac, and it's about a new Mac Stealer malware. Back in March, we saw a piece of malware surface for Mac OS called Mac Stealer that's able to compromise iCloud keychain passwords, credit card information, files, and more. Now a new malware called Atomic Mac OS Stealer, or Amos, is being sold as a service to malicious parties that may be more threatening. This year, we've seen a report from Malwarebytes covering the state of malware on Mac, as well as another study from Elastic Security Labs. In the latter, results showed just 6% of all malware impacted Macs. But even though it's more likely to affect Windows and Linux, threat actors are actively designing malware specifically for Mac OS, and it's important to stay diligent. With the Mac Stealer malware that we saw in March, it indeed was powerful, but is likely a lower risk overall because Mac OS Gatekeeper should block it from being installed. And Gatekeeper is a built-in feature of Mac OS, it's sort of like antivirus on a lower scale, but it's a security feature. Cyber Research and Intelligence Labs recently found the new Atomic Mac OS Stealer, Amos, malware as it was advertised for sale on Telegram. Notably, Cybel didn't mention Mac OS Gatekeeper as offering protection for the new Amos in its technical analysis, so it could prove more dangerous than Mac Stealer. If installed, Amos can compromise a long list of items, including iCloud keychain passwords, the macOS system password, cookies, passwords, and credit card details from Chrome, Firefox, Brave, Edge, Opera, and many more. It also can compromise crypto wallets, including Atomic, Binance, Exodus, Electrum, MetaMask, and many more. After the malware compromises a user's information, it compresses the data into a zip file and sends it back to the malicious party through a CNC or command and control server URL. It goes on to give some tips, and I'll just cover a, a few key ones here. First, you know, as always, download and install software only from the official Apple App Store if you can help it. Hopefully, most of the software you would want to use would be uh, available there, or at least, you know, downloadable from a reputable site. Be very careful when you get pop-ups asking you for an admin username and password. That's some piece of software trying to do something that only an admin should be able to do. And sometimes that is malware trying to escalate its permissions so it can really get up to mischief. So, so whenever you see those pop-ups, do not just get in the habit of blindly putting in your username and password for your admin account. Look very carefully about what those things are. And if you don't know what they are, try to look them up on the web and make sure that they're legit. Also beware of any pop-ups asking you for extra permissions, particularly uh, for accessibility permissions. Accessibility is great. Those are really nice features for people who need them, but they can also be used to work around a lot of other security features. So be very careful with that permission in particular. Also beware of giving file and folder access permissions. And, you know, in general, as always, just, you know, if you get an attachment to a file or uh, something in a, in a text message, don't open it. And if you do, and you get one of these kind of permission pop-ups or these... Uh, admin password pop-ups. Be very, very careful about that. All right, moving on. This is from Lifehacker. And I just thought this article was interesting. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but it's called five things scammers are hoping you Google. 
Humans are predictable. When we want to know something, we're probably going to Google it. Companies know this and often try to game the algorithm by producing content that they know will match with common searches. The problem is scammers know this too and are happy to use their knowledge of what you're likely to Google against you. I'm not talking about scammers who pay for misleading ads featured in Google's sponsored results, though that's a problem too. Instead, these bad actors are exploiting commonly searched phrases to serve up links to websites that will try to trick you into falling for a scam. The risk is always there, but there are five things you should Google with particular care. First, free credit report. Ironically, one of the riskiest search terms when it comes to exposing yourself to scammers actually has the opposite intended effect. We all know that we are legally entitled to viewing our credit report for free, and that's in the U.S., and that monitoring your credit report is a great way to ensure your identity hasn't been compromised. But if you're not careful, Googling free credit report can take you to a site that will put you at risk of just that. Fake credit report sites will ask for a lot of personal information, and you might be inclined to provide it, assuming it's necessary for you to receive your report. Instead, you'll be giving up your personal information to someone who certainly does not have your financial well-being in mind. Luckily, there's an easy way to avoid this risk. Each of the three major consumer reporting companies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, allow you to check your credit with them once a year by visiting annualcreditreport.com. No Googling is necessary, though... <laughs> I've got to say that I never remember what that is because there's a lot of other ones out there that sound very similar to that, which is what this article is basically saying. That, that is on purpose. So I can't remember this name. I always forget it. And so I end up Googling it myself or searching, not really Googling. And there are plenty that sound just like that. Now, thankfully, I think a lot of search engines, because this one is so bad, even Google, I think, has managed to weed out a lot of the really bad ones. But it used to be it used to be much worse. Anyway, if you can remember that, annualcreditreport.com is the one you want. Honestly, I wish they would make that a .gov site so that it would be a little easier to remember and a little harder to, to, to get wrong. Anyway, moving on, here's the second thing that scammers want you to try to Google, and that is company, in kind of parentheses, customer service number. Sometimes you need to talk to a customer service ASAP, and in your rush, you call the first official-seeming phone number you can find. Scammers are hoping it's actually one of theirs, and that you won't notice any of the inconspicuous red flags they've unintentionally left behind that would tip you off that the number you're dialing isn't legit. Let's say you're trying to call your cell phone company, but end up inadvertently calling a scammer. They ask to text you a security code to quote-unquote confirm your identity, and you give it to them. Whoops, you've just given them a way to reset your account password. Or they'll do something similar to take over your phone and use it to try to scam others. An easy way to avoid this is to make sure you're not blindly dialing the first number that comes up in a Google search. Check the source URL or the website address and make sure it's the official website by reviewing the About Us or Contact page for anything fishy. And I mean, that's one way you could do it, but just, <laughs> just look at the URL and make sure it makes sense. I mean, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about, you know, going to fake websites or whatever, but there's also fake phone numbers out there as well, and it's kind of harder to tell the phone numbers. So just make sure that the website that you're getting the phone number from looks legit. There are three other things it talks about, but I'm not going to mention them here. If you want to read the article, go ahead. The other three search terms were high paying remote job, free people finder, and best crypto wallet. So given what we already talked about, it's probably pretty obvious how some of those could go bad. But the, 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 the bottom line here is just when you're searching for these things, be very careful. These topics in particular are very popular that people search for and scammers know that. And so they try to pollute the responses with fake websites and scams. All right, next up, this is from The Verge. And this is, this just drives me nuts. And this is about Microsoft Edge. And honestly, I'm just going to tell you right now, don't use Microsoft Edge as your browser. Microsoft Windows will push it really hard. Uh, it will be the default on Windows, but you should not be using Microsoft Edge. And here's another reason why. Microsoft's Edge browser appears to be sending URLs you visit to its Bing API website. Reddit users first spotted the privacy issues with Edge last week, noticing that the latest version of Microsoft Edge sends a request to bingapis.com with the full URL of nearly every page you navigate to. Microsoft tells The Verge it's investigating the reports. While Reddit users weren't able to uncover why Microsoft Edge is sending the URLs you visit to the Bing API site, we asked Rafael Riviera, a software engineer and one of the developers behind Ear Trumpet, I never heard of that, to investigate, and he discovered it's part of a poorly implemented 
unexpected new feature in Edge. And this is a quote from Riviera, quote, Microsoft Edge now has a creator follow feature that is enabled by default. It appears the intent was to notify Bing when you're on certain pages, such as YouTube, The Verge, and Reddit. But it doesn't appear to be working correctly, instead sending nearly every domain you visit to Bing, unquote. Microsoft first started testing this new creator follow feature in Edge last year before rolling it out more broadly in recent months. It's designed to let you follow your favorite content creators on YouTube and across the web. If you disable the feature, URLs are no longer sent to bingapis.com. Microsoft has a master filter available here, and of course that's a link that you have to go to the article to click on, for this creative follow feature, which includes domains like Pornhub, where URLs are blocked from being sent to the Bing API site. It looks like for every previously unchecked URL you visit, it passes it to bingapis.com, which has huge privacy implications, especially when this functionality is enabled by default. Until Microsoft completes its investigation and presumably patches this problem, we'd highly recommend turning off the follow creators feature in Microsoft Edge. Chances are you never knew it existed and will never use it, so it's not a function you're likely to miss. To do so, navigate to Settings, choose the Privacy Search and Services tab, and scroll down to Services. Toggle off the switch beside Show Suggestions to follow creators and Microsoft Edge, and you should be fine. Or, <laughs> in my advice, again, just don't use Edge. Use Firefox, use Brave, don't use Chrome, don't use Edge. All right, next up, this is from Lifehacker, and this is about Microsoft Windows 10, which now officially is getting no further feature updates. Windows 11 has come a long way since its initial launch, but it still isn't for everyone. Plenty of Windows 10 fans refuse to upgrade their machines to Microsoft's latest OS. One estimate suggests Windows 10 still commands 73% of PCs in the world, while Windows 11 remains at 21%, which begs the question, what are the other 6% running? Anyway, there are more than a few reasons for this discrepancy, but the winds of change might be upon us now that we know Windows 10 will never have another update again. Microsoft announced the news in a blog post Thursday, confirming fears from Windows 10 users across the globe. The current version, 22H2, will be the last version of Windows 10 ever. That means going forward, Windows 10 will receive zero new features. The OS as it is today will be this way forever. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'll circle back to that in a minute. It isn't surprising news given the company stopped selling copies of Microsoft 10 back in January. For their part, Microsoft strongly encourages you to update from Windows 10 to Windows 11. But even those who want to update often can't since Microsoft has strict requirements for which PCs can actually update to Windows 11. The company requires your PC to have a trusted platform module or TPM version 2.0 for security reasons, but that excludes many PCs older than six years. You can bypass these restrictions to install Windows 11 on an older unsupported machine, but it's tricky and not recommended by Microsoft. For many in this situation, it's better to stick with Windows 10, especially if a new PC isn't in the budget. As Microsoft previously announced, the company will support Windows 10 until October 14th, 2025. Support is the key word here, and it doesn't mean adding whatever new software advances Microsoft comes up with to Windows. Rather, Microsoft has pledged to support Windows 10 with monthly security updates through that date. Okay, so what this is basically saying is that Windows 10 is done. They're not going to be adding any more features to it from now ever. They will, however, continue to put out security updates. And frankly, that's not a bad place to be. Adding new features adds new bugs. And honestly, a lot of these features are not stuff that we want anyway. So if you are on Windows 10 and you are happy with Windows 10, I'd say just stick with it until they stop giving security updates. And when they do, if they stick with their date of October of 2025, at that point, you definitely should update because if there's any future bugs found in it, you will not get them fixed, which means you will be vulnerable. But it's actually kind of like a quiet period. You'll be in this stage where there aren't going to be any new features that might introduce new bugs. I'd say basically it's more secure to stay on Windows 10 at this point if you're happy with the feature set as the way it is because we... We keep changing things all the time. And every time we do that, we break stuff. All right, next up, another Microsoft story. And this is from the register. And this is really good news. Microsoft is rewriting core Windows libraries in the Rust programming language. And the more memory safe code is already reaching developers. David Weston, director of OS security for Windows, announced the arrival of Rust in the operating systems kernel at Blue Hat IL 2023 in Tel Aviv, Israel last month. 
And this is a quote from David, quote, you will actually have Windows booting with Rust in the kernel in probably the next several weeks or months, which is really cool. The basic goal here was to convert some of these internal C++ data types into their Rust equivalents, unquote. And I'll circle back to what that means in a minute. Microsoft showed interest in Rust several years ago as a way to catch and squash memory safety bugs before the code lands in the hands of users. These kinds of bugs were at the heart of about 70% of the CVE-listed security vulnerabilities patched by the Windows Maker in its own products since 2006. 70%. The Rust toolchain strives to prevent code from being built and shipped that is exploitable, which in an ideal world reduces opportunities for miscreants to attack weaknesses in the software. Simply put, Rust is focused on memory safety and similar protections, which cuts down on the number of bad bugs in the resulting code. Rivals like Google have already publicly declared their affinity for Rust. All right, so let me explain this a little bit. So software is, is written using coding languages like C and C++ and Python and C Sharp and .NET and JavaScript and, and Rust. Rust is relatively new. Uh, it's also relatively fast, which some other languages like Java tend to not be as fast as some of the older languages like C and C++. However, C and C++ do their own memory management. And I don't want to get into software engineering stuff too much here, but basically they allocate and free memory directly on their own. And there are very few protections in what happens when they're trying to write and read from memory, which hackers love because if they find a way to screw that up and get you to go off into the weeds, basically into your computer memory, they can put stuff in the weeds that will benefit them and not you that will basically let them hack your computer. That's a very, very high level way of putting it. But basically what Rust does is it protects developers from making those kinds of coding mistakes, which are unfortunately very easy to do. I mean, that percentage they gave 70% of the vulnerabilities that have been patched in windows are basically memory problems. Those are the worst problems. So the fact that Microsoft is doing this and moving their core operating system stuff to rust from C and C++ is a very, very welcome development, and it cannot happen soon enough. Next up, this is also from 9to5Mac, and it's one of many articles I saw with very similar titles because it was based on the same clickbaity report. And not that it's not real, but I want to, <laughs> I want to just use this as an example of why you've got to be careful of what you're reading. So it's very short. Let me read this and then I'll explain. Ahead of World Password Day on May 4th, which was last week, NordPass has released a report showing that password habits die hard with a list of the most used passwords in the U.S. and 29 other countries. For the U.S., many of the usual suspects are on the list. However, this time around, 123456 is no longer the most popular password. The study also found that 83% of these passwords can be cracked in less than a second. And that's the thing I want to get back to. But let me finish. For its study, NordPass evaluated over three terabytes worth of data with the help of independent researchers to determine the top 200 most used passwords in 30 different countries. And here are four major takeaways. One, guest beat out 123456 to be the most popular passwords among Americans in 2022. Two, simple combinations of letters, numbers, and symbols such as A1B2C3 or ABC123 or QWERTY, which happens to be the first six characters on a standard U.S. keyboard, are highly popular in the U.S. Three, when creating passwords, people tend to draw inspiration from cultural experiences, lifestyle trends, or recent events, be it sports or fashion. For example, American professional sports teams' names like the Detroit Red Wings or the Boston Red Sox or variations of them make extremely popular passwords. And finally, four, again, 83% of the world's most common passwords can be cracked in less than a second. So it's that last part that I really want to dig into here because it was this was the one that made the headlines everywhere. 83% of the most common passwords can be cracked in less than a second. Uh, okay, so the 83% maybe of the worst passwords can be cracked instantly because these programs know. I mean, the bad guys know have the same list. The bad guys know all the passwords that we like to choose, especially the ones that are super, super common. And all they have to do to quote unquote crack that password is just hash it. I mean, which again, that's a cryptographic function that is very easy for a modern computer to do very quickly. It takes basically zero effort. There's not really any cracking involved here. What this is really saying is uh, of these really bad passwords that are well known to the bad guys, they can get through guessing all of those very, very quickly. There's really no math involved with this. There's no effort. There's no, 
super crazy technical skill involved in doing this. They all know the bad passwords and all they got to do is try them because these bad guys know which passwords we like to use. We have such lists. This is one of them. So it doesn't mean that 83% of all passwords can be cracked in a second. That is not what it's saying. It's saying that 83% of the most commonly used bad passwords can be guessed in a second. So anyway, as usual, use good passwords. Use a password manager to generate long, strong, unique passwords for every website. If you can remember it, chances are it has some patterns to it, and the bad guys know those patterns very well. All right, next up, more password news. This is from the Hacker News, and it's about Google introducing password lists uh, or pass keys for their Google accounts. Almost five months after Google added support for pass keys to its Chrome browser, the tech giant has begun rolling out the passwordless solution across Google accounts on all platforms. Pass keys, backed by the FIDO Alliance, are a more secure way to sign into apps and websites without having to use traditional passwords. This, in turn, can be achieved by simply unlocking their computer or mobile device with their biometrics, fingerprint or facial recognition, or a local PIN. Pass keys, once created, are locally stored on the device and are not shared with any other party. This also obviates the need for setting up two-factor authentication as it proves that you have access to the device and are unable to unlock it. I'll circle back to that. Users also have the choice of creating passkeys for every device they use to log into a Google account. That said, a passkey created on one device will be synced to all the user's other devices running the same operating system platform, like Android or iOS or macOS or Windows, and if they are signed into the same account. Viewed in that light, passkeys are not truly interoperable. It's worth pointing out that both Google Password Manager and iCloud Keychain use end-to-end encryption to keep the passkeys private, thereby preventing users from getting locked out should they lose access to to their devices or making it easier to upgrade from one device to another. Additionally, users can sign in on a new device or temporarily use a different device by selecting the option to use a passkey from another device, which then uses the phone's screen lock and proximity to approve a one-time sign-in. And a quote from Google, quote, the device then verifies that your phone is in proximity using a small anonymous Bluetooth message and sets up an end-to-end encrypted connection to the phone through the internet. The phone uses this connection to deliver your one-time passkey signature, which requires your approval and the biometric or screen lock step on your phone. Neither the passkey itself nor the screen lock information is sent to the new device, unquote. While this may be the beginning of the end of the password, the company says it intends to continue to support existing login methods like passwords and two-factor authentication for the foreseeable future. Google is also recommending that users do not create passkeys on devices that are shared with others, a move that could effectively undermine all of its security protections. All right, so passkeys is something we've talked about before. It's still rolling out. Uh, It requires that websites support it, which is part of what's slowing things down, but also like 1Password, Bitwarden and some of those companies, they're all kind of racing to get this technology out there so that you can securely store these pass keys. And this is the tricky part, synchronizing them somehow between devices, because basically what happens with pass keys and password lists is they generate this key pair, a private key and a public key. The public key can be given to anybody. In this case, it's given to the site you're trying to create the account on or change your account style from username and password to pass keys. And when you do this, they store a public key. And it doesn't matter if anybody ever sees that or steals that key. It's just there so that that website has the other half of your key pair and can send you what's called a challenge. And so when you go to log in, it sends you this challenge using your public key. And the response you give can only be correct if you have the associated private key and that private key is stored in your device, it's all managed by your device. You don't ever see it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to remember it, but your device is there representing you. Basically it's saying, well, if you have your smartphone, then we're assuming that that is you trying to log in. And so on your device, you unlock uh, your device with your biometrics or with possibly with a pin code on your device. And then this challenge comes in and your device handles responding to that challenge based on your private key. So the trick then is what if you have multiple devices like most of us do? A lot of us have maybe a tablet and a smartphone or a smartphone and a a laptop. Uh, And so you also want to be able to use these same keys from there. So now you've got this problem. You've got this private key that whenever you set it up is on the device where you set it up. But now you're on your other device and it doesn't necessarily have that private key. So now they've also got to come up with a way for you to log in from that other device as well. And there's this one thing that this article talked about that kind of lets you do this Bluetooth enabled local challenge where from your laptop, you just want to log in and say, I want to log in using my iPhone. 
And so it does a special thing, which it just talked about where it sets up a local Bluetooth connection and then does this challenge. It's confusing, but it basically, it allows your laptop to access the private key uh, or respond to the challenge from the site using your public key, using the private key that's on your other device. But what we probably really want to do is find some way to securely synchronize those private keys amongst all your devices, or potentially you could actually have different pairs of keys that all unlock the same account. Like you could set up your account for your smartphone, which stores private key number one on your smartphone, and that will get you into, let's say, your Amazon account. And then you go to your laptop and you set up private key number two, also for the exact same account on Amazon, but it's actually a different pair of keys. So it's two different pairs of keys that will unlock the same account. These are all the complicated things we've got to figure out. But at the end of the day, pass keys are going to be much better than passwords. There's nothing to remember, nothing to forget. Uh, when people hack into, inevitably, some of these places and try to download their password databases, there won't be anything to get. These public keys that are stored on the website, like on Amazon.com, are useless to the bad guys. And your private keys are stored very, very securely on your devices and protected by biometrics, usually in the case of your, your phone, or by some sort of other security mechanism on your laptops or computers. All right, next up, this is from Apple Insider, and it's about a brand new thing Apple is doing called Rapid Security Response. Apple has released its first Rapid Security Response update to the public, updating iOS 16.4.1 and macOS 13.3.1 with security fixes. But the rollout isn't that smooth as of yet. A Rapid Security Response update is a special kind of update that doesn't require users to perform a normal software update. Instead of a lengthy update procedure, the update can instead be quickly downloaded and installed within minutes. Tested in beta, the updates are intended to provide important security changes between the regular software updates. This can include fast fixes for urgent security issues, such as actively used exploits against Apple software with the RSR changes to mitigate risks of infection or data loss. We've tested it across multiple devices. So far, as of 1.50 p.m. Eastern Time, this was last week, every attempt to update has been met with the warning that the device cannot verify the security response. The warning goes on to say that the device is, quote, no longer connected to the Internet, quote, when that isn't the case. RSRs are only to be delivered to the latest versions of iOS, iPadOS, and macOS, and do not apply to earlier releases. When an RSR is applied, the update adds a letter to the end of the version number. For example, turning iOS 16.4.1 to iOS 16.4.1a, where the a is lowercase and in parentheses. According to a new support document, the default setting is for the RSR to be applied automatically and for the users to be prompted to restart the device when required. While the update is seemingly available to download straight away, you won't necessarily be able to install it. Tweets by, and it gives two Twitter handles, reveal that the RSR has a, quote, granular ramping logic, unquote, in that it will allow a percentage of users to install the update at a time. If a screenshot of code is correct, only 5% of users will be able to install the update in the first six hours of release, rising to 15% by 12 hours, 40% by 24 hours after release, and 70% by hour 36. After 48 hours, all users who downloaded the update will be able to install it. It's unclear how the proportion of users is selected. In other words, which set of users get to be part of which of these phases. Attempts to install the update before the device is allowed to will display a notice saying the iPhone is, quote, unable to verify security response, unquote, and claiming it is because the device is, quote, no longer connected to the Internet, unquote. Despite the apparent lack of Internet, according to the message, users can still go online normally with their iPhone without restriction, and the notice only applies to the update. All right, so a couple things there. First of all, this is cool. Apple's rapid security response is is a nice way to get out crucial security fixes in a short period of time. It's like a micro update for the operating system for either your iPhone or your computer or whatever. That's good. However, they're still obviously working the kinks out of this process. Uh, it sounds like, and this is interesting, that they allow 48 hours for these things to roll out. I'm not sure why, if they're so small and so quick and so urgent, I'm, I'm not sure why they would even want to wait 48 hours for these things to get out. But it sounds like, at least for now anyway, there, there's this gradual release. Like you can, everybody can download it probably right away, but they want to slowly release this update to the public and probably in case there's some problem with it. So if they 
roll it out to a first select few set of people and something goes wrong, they can stop it, fix it and try again. Also, you're now going to start seeing once these things roll out, you're going to start seeing when you look at the version of software that your devices are running, you're going to start seeing this new thing that you had not seen before. It's a little letter, you know, A, B, C, who knows how big it'll get, but some little letter in parentheses next to the version number. And before the version number was just a dotted set of digits, you know, 16.4.1, 13.3.1. Now, if you've gotten one of these rapid security response updates, you're going to now see after that a little letter A or a letter B or something in parentheses after that. So that's going to look different if you've ever looked at this and that's what that's about. But they definitely need to figure out the uh, the error messages for these things because that is going to confuse and worry a lot of people. It should say something more clear like your RSR has been downloaded, it's been staged for installing, and your device will be updated in this time frame or your device will be eligible for installing this update in this time frame, and it will happen automatically, you know, stuff like that a little something more clear about what's going on there instead of this weird message about not being able to connect to the internet and unable to verify the security response. I mean, those all sound scary and weird. I actually saw that myself when I tried to install this and I thought that was weird. So anyway, they're going to work the kinks out, they'll make it better. But you if you have an Apple device, you've probably seen this going on. And so that is, that's what's happening. And I wanted you to be aware. All right, next up, this is from Apple insider. And I, I found this fascinating. The NYPD or the New York police department is handing out free air tags to residents in the city in a bid to try and cut down on the amount of stolen cars in some neighborhoods. Crime overall is down in New York, but in one particular instance, the figures have shot up. Vehicle thefts have increased 13% year-on-year in the city, with close to 4,500 thefts reported over the year. On Sunday, the New York Police Department and Mayor Eric Adams revealed that 500 air tags would be provided to people in the 43 precinct due to it having the highest level of grand larceny auto cases at more than 200, reports ABC7 of New York. The air tags are being donated by Nonprofit Association for a Better New York. And by the way, these things are like 25 bucks a piece. Residents wanting an AirTag can contact their local precinct to request one, though it is unclear if an effort is made to help Android device owners in the same way. AirTag has been useful in tracking down stolen vehicles and other property, but it is always advised to provide details to police rather than for car owners to interfere. In Texas in April, a truck theft resulted in the suspected thief being shot in the vehicle by the owner. In August of 2022, a New York man found his stolen motorbike, but ended up with a broken nose after being beaten by the thieves. Another story that I didn't read uh, was that an AirTag was used to recover $1.1 million in stolen money from a Brinks armored car. Apparently, the bank had uh, hidden an AirTag in one of the bins that had all the cash, and that was used to find the stolen money. I've used them myself. I've had my daughters use them. Uh, they've been used to track luggage, that which is a great way to use them. But they're being used all over the place. And I just think it's really interesting that New York is actually giving these things away to try to deter car thefts. But also these air tags have been used to track people, people that aren't aware that they're being tracked. In other words, stalk people. And, and Apple has tried very hard to add some features that would prevent this from happening, including alerting you to an air tag that is near you, that's been near you for a long time, that is not your air tag. And they've even released uh, software for Android phones as well. So that if, so if you don't have an Apple product, you can still detect that there is some weird Apple AirTag near you that basically may be used to track you. So that brings me to this next article from, uh, it's actually a press release from Apple. I think Google had one too, but I'll, let me read this snippet from the Apple one. Location tracking devices help users find personal items like their keys, purse, luggage, and more through crowdsourced finding networks. However, they can also be misused for unwanted tracking of individuals. Today, Apple and Google jointly submitted a proposed industry specification to help combat the misuse of Bluetooth location tracking devices for unwanted tracking. The first of its kind specification will allow Bluetooth location tracking devices to be compatible with unauthorized tracking detection and alerts across iOS and Android platforms. Samsung, Tile, Chipolo, Eufy Security, and Pebblebee have expressed support for the draft specification, which offers best practices and instructions for manufacturers should they choose to build these capabilities into their products. In addition to incorporating feedback from device manufacturers, input from various safety and advocacy groups has been integrated into the development of the specification. 
The specification has been submitted as an internet draft via the Internet Engineering Task Force, or IETF, and a leading standards development organization. And it is the leading standards org for the internet. Interested parties are invited and encouraged to review and comment over the next three months. Following the comment period, Apple and Google will partner to address feedback and will release a production implementation of the specification for unwanted tracking alerts by the end of 2023 that will then be supported in future versions of iOS and Android. So these things are really handy. I really like using them. I recommend that people use them to track their stuff. It's great for luggage, especially, you know, checked luggage, but, you know, keys, purses, all that stuff. They're really, really quite handy, but they can be abused like any technology. And so I think this is really welcome development of these guys working together to put together a non-proprietary open standard through the IETF to prevent these things from being abused, or at least to try to prevent them from being abused to stalk and track people. All right, next up, this is from Gizmodo, and this is about Google Authenticator, two-factor authentication app that's very, very popular, but for a long time has had a glaring feature missing. Fortunately, they have now added that feature. Unfortunately, they did a very poor job in implementing this feature. Let me read the article. A new two-factor authentication tool from Google isn't end-to-end encrypted, which could expose users to significant security risks, a test by security researchers found. Google's Authenticator app provides unique codes that website logins may ask for as a second layer of security on top of passwords. On Monday, Google announced a long-awaited feature that lets you sync Authenticator to a Google account and use it across multiple devices. That's great news because in the past, you could end up locked out of your account if you lost the phone with the Authenticator app installed. But when app developers and security researchers at the software company MISC took a look under the hood, they found the underlying data isn't end-to-end encrypted. And this is a quote from Tommy MISC. Quote, We tested the feature as soon as Google released it. We realized that the app didn't prompt or offer an option to use a passphrase to protect the secrets. Unquote. When MISC and his partner analyzed the network traffic as the app synced with Google servers, they found the data is not end-to-end encrypted. And this is another quote from MISC, quote, This means that Google can see the secrets likely even when they're stored on their servers, unquote. You can use Google Authenticator without tying it to your Google account or syncing it across devices, which avoids this issue. Unfortunately, that means it might be best to avoid a useful feature that users spent years clamoring for. And another quote from Misk, quote, the bottom line, although syncing 2FA secrets across devices is convenient, it comes at the expense of your privacy. We recommend using the app without the new syncing feature for now, unquote. The tests found the unencrypted traffic contains a seed that's used to generate the two-factor authentication codes. According to Misk, anyone with access to that seed can generate their own codes for your accounts and break in. And finally, one last quote from Misk. Quote, if Google servers were compromised, secrets would leak, unquote. Adding insult to injury, QR codes involved with setting up two-factor authentication also contain the name of the account or service, Amazon or Twitter, for example. And I lied. One more quote from this, quote, the attacker can also know which accounts you have. This is particularly risky if you're an activist or run other Twitter accounts anonymously, unquote. So... This is a feature that Google has lacked for a long time. It was one of the original reasons that I recommend people use Authy instead of Google Authenticator, other than the privacy reasons. Just for security reasons, you really need these things to be available everywhere that you have a device that might want to connect to the internet and log into an account. So while you could have your device with you, it's also good to be able to have it on another device for backup. Or like this article says, if you get a new phone, you want to be able to transfer you know, these codes, these two-factor authentication code seeds, for each of your accounts from your old device to your new device, or if you lose a device, you want them backed up in the cloud so that you can just download them to your new device. Otherwise, if you lose your one device that is the only place that these things exist, then you're screwed. If these accounts are set up correctly, you cannot disable two-factor authentication without having the two-factor authentication in the first place. But for some dumb reason, now that Google has finally added this feature that lets you back up your codes to the cloud or synchronize them between your devices, they didn't implement full end-to-end encryption. Now, my guess is that the connection over the air, you know, from your device to Google server, that probably is encrypted. I hope. This article didn't make that clear. But my guess is that that part of the communication is encrypted. But it sounds like the, the codes are stored on Google servers in an unencrypted format so that Google can see them or a rogue employee at Google can see them or somebody who hacks into Google can see them. That's not good. 
So I assume Google will probably fix this at some point, but my advice is just don't use Google Authenticator. Any service that can use Google Authenticator can also use Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, or any of the other two-factor authentication apps. Uh, you might also look at Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, or Razo, R-A-I-Z-O, they're, they're good too. There are, there are others, but I, I personally like Authy. All right, next up, this is from the Washington Post, and it's yet another case of big companies trying to get your health data uh, in tricky, nasty ways. Amazon has a new low-price health service called Amazon Clinic. For as little as 30 bucks, you can message online with a clinician from an Amazon partner who will write you a prescription from anything from COVID-19 to herpes. But there's a hidden cost to Amazon Clinic, your privacy. This is how big tech companies get away with invading your intimate business, and the laws that are supposed to protect us just aren't keeping up. A Washington Post reader asked me to investigate a legal form Amazon asks new clinic patients to agree to, so I signed up. This authorization isn't a standard doctor's office notice detailing how they follow the health privacy law known as HIPAA, or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. That's what makes sure your doctor protects your health information and shares it only in very specific circumstances. This Amazon form is asking for something more extraordinary, quote, use and disclosure of protected health information, unquote. It authorizes Amazon to have your quote unquote complete patient file and notes that information, quote, may be redisclosed, unquote, after which it, quote, will no longer be protected by HIPAA, unquote. Amazon is essentially pushing people to waive some of their federal privacy protections, says the lawyers at the Electronic Privacy Information Center, whom I asked to inspect the jargon. Amazon is required by law to say doing so is voluntary, but in practice, you must agree to become a patient at its clinic. There's only one button to click. Continue. Amazon says our data is protected by its privacy practices. It says it needs the HIPAA authorization to, quote, help coordinate future health care services from Amazon, unquote, because its clinic is merely software used by external health care providers. That shouldn't matter. We, the users and patients, want our intimate information to be locked down by law with no loopholes for tech companies. The problem is as much tech overreach as it is American privacy rules that, unlike in Europe, don't apply to many health situations and regulate specific players in the system rather than the information itself. Amazon is pushing deeper into healthcare before it has earned our trust as a steward of very sensitive data, and these shenanigans don't help. When I asked Amazon to be clear about what it is and isn't doing with patient data, spokeswoman Christina Smith emailed, quote, we don't use customer data for purposes that customers haven't consented to, unquote. But Amazon's HIPAA authorization is notably vague about what we're consenting to. It says it will use the data to, quote, facilitate services from other providers, unquote. That could mean disclosing our information to other medical providers, or it could mean disclosing it to any business that wants to provide services to us. To be clear, I don't have evidence of Amazon doing something naughty with this data. After I signed up for the clinic, consented to its authorization, and paid 30 bucks for help with seasonal allergies, I didn't suddenly get swamped with ads tied to my diagnosis. But we also shouldn't have to wait for abuse to stop it from happening, or let companies make their own rules for how to protect our most sensitive information. So yeah, just another case where this is happening. This is obviously a hot new field when COVID hit and telemedicine became a much more common thing. I think a lot of these companies started getting into it. And again, we've got some protections in the US, not great ones, but we do have some protections for health related information in the United States, HIPAA being the main one. But it's very easy, it turns out to give away those rights. And there's a lot of places where those rights don't apply at all. And people don't understand that people think that the health information itself is protected when really it's not, you got to be very careful. And I would absolutely avoid using services like GoodRx and Amazon clinic and some of these others until we can get some real solid regulations, new regulations on the protection of health data. But there are some things in the works. And that leads me to my next article. Uh, and this is from the verge. A new Washington state law will require companies to receive a user's explicit consent before they can collect, share, or sell their health data. Washington's Governor Jay Inslee signed the My Health, My Data bill into law on Thursday, giving users the right to withdraw consent at any time and have their data deleted. This law should help shield users' health data from the companies and organizations not included under the HIPAA privacy rule, which prevents certain medical providers from disclosing 
quote-unquote, individually identifiable health information without consent. The HIPAA privacy rule doesn't cover many of the health apps and sites that collect medical data, allowing them to freely collect and sell this information to advertisers. Under Washington's new law, which comes into effect in March of 2024, medical apps and sites must ask a user for permission to collect their health data in a non-deceptive manner that, quote, openly communicates a consumer's freely given, informed, opt-in, voluntary, specific, and unambiguous written consent, unquote. The site and apps must also disclose what kind of data they plan to collect and if they plan to sell it. Additionally, the bill will block medical providers from using geofencing to collect location information about the patients that visit the facility. In recent months, the Federal Trade Commission has been cracking down on apps and websites that share sensitive health information with advertisers, in part due to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the rise of telehealth during the COVID pandemic. Earlier this year, the FTC fined the online pharmacy and telehealth provider GoodRx for sending health data to Google, Facebook, and companies without consent. Meanwhile, other online services, including two alcohol counseling companies and the telehealth startup Cerebral, admitted to sharing patient data with third parties. Meta also faces class action lawsuits that accuse the company of violating patient privacy through its pixel tracking tool all of which I have discussed recently on this show. Last month, Democrats introduced the Upholding Protections for Health and Online Location Data, or the Uphold Privacy Act, that would bar companies from selling private health information, while Congress also held a hearing on the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, or ADPPA, which gives users the ability to request the deletion of their data. So I'm not going to say much more about this. I've flogged this topic to death a lot lately. But these articles were longer if you want to read more about it and get more information. Check the show notes. All right. Now, as promised, I I was going to read a few different articles. And I, I will leave links to these articles in the show notes in case you want to look at them. Uh, they were around similar topics. And this has been all over the news lately, but it's not a new thing. In fact, we've been fighting this some of this stuff for decades. One of the articles was about India banning 14 different encrypted messaging apps, trying to thwart terrorist communications. One of them was about Arkansas banning access to social media by minors without explicit say-so from their parents, and I think to anybody under 13. Utah is doing something similar. Another article about the Earn It Act, and that's an acronym, and I forget what it stands for, but it's come up several times. This is like the third Congress or congressional session that it's been introduced. It's still bad, and it's trying to require breaking strong encryption or at least violating people's privacy by, by requiring backdoor access or maybe device scanning or things like that. And we've talked about this many times on the show. We've done whole shows on some of these topics, so I didn't want to beat these things to death. But I wanted to take the time to recognize that this is going on, that these are still important issues, that you still need to be aware of these things and you need to be pushing back where you can and talking to your representatives and vetting potential future candidate representatives against some of these topics and just give you a, a, a few quick comments on this, and then we'll move on to my tip of the week. Okay, first of all, I want to acknowledge again, these are real issues, uh, you know, child sexual abuse, terrorism, drug trafficking, human trafficking, there's a lot of really bad things that do happen in the world. And absolutely, technology can facilitate those endeavors. These are real problems. And it is true that some of the technological advances that we have, including encrypted communications and, and all sorts of other technology, can be used in furtherance of these horrible, horrible things. But the point is, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray here. There's a lot of situations we need to think about. And we can't just come up with these knee-jerk rea reactions to these things to make ourselves feel good or to show our constituents that we're you know, doing things. We've got to be much more nuanced and we've got to be much more careful. I like analogies, but it's, it's kind of hard to come up with analogies for some of these things, but it'd be like saying, well, automobiles are used in getaways for bank robberies. They're used by terrorists to run people over on the street. They're used by drug gangs to transport drugs. Therefore we should ban cars or severely limit access to cars. You know, maybe every time you get in a car, you've got to somehow, you know, submit to official recognition and show your driver's license before the vehicle will even start. It's just silly. The car is just a tool. We have other ways to find and stop and mitigate these crimes other than to try to ban the vehicle that was used in, in furtherance of the crime. And more to the point, cars have huge, huge undeniable benefits for everybody. And so we can't restrict access to them. They're, they're just too important. 
but they are physical things that you have to produce and buy, unlike encryption. Encryption is just math. So from that standpoint, the analogy would be trying to ban math or maybe ban chemistry. I mean, you can't ban chemistry because it's used to make bad drugs or illegal drugs. A lot of those drugs are only illegal if they're not prescribed. Some of those drugs used to be illegal and now aren't. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, criminals already have this technology. It's already out there. You cannot stop it. You can't put the horse back in the barn. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's, it's out there. It's available. Banning it is next to impossible. And what's going to happen is, is you're going to prevent the people who need to use these things for legitimate purposes from, from using it, but you're not going to prevent criminals from using it because they already know how to get this stuff. Making it illegal is not going to stop them from using it. I mean, let's face it, determined teenagers and political dissidents and yes, pedophiles and terrorists, they're going to find ways around these really ineffective technical limitations. They will not stop it. At the end of the day, the bottom line is, no matter how you feel about these issues and where you might want to draw the line, these technical solutions don't work. And they're going to end up doing a lot more harm than good. Restricting access to encryption puts all of us at risk. So I understand where they're coming from, but you know, good intentions pave the way to hell. They have their hearts in the right places. I understand where they're coming from. I sympathize with them. I agree that these are real problems that need solutions, but the solutions are not to ban the technology, the tools that are used by these people. If for no other reason, then it just isn't going to work. Okay, so <laughs> you can read the articles that I was going to read if you'd like. The links are in the show notes. And more to the point, if you want to get involved, uh, particularly there's one in there from the EFF, uh, that will tell you how to get involved with, in particular, in this case, the Earn It Act. I also encourage you to check out the ACLU or the Center for Democracy and Technology or the Electronic Privacy Information Center. These are all great places to learn about these types of issues and learn how you can make your voice heard, understand the issues, and be able to explain them to others, including your representatives. I encourage you to reach out to your your local and federal government representatives to make yourself heard on these things, but also friends and family as you know, as these things come up, it's good to educate others as well. All right. I, I am sure we will get back to some of those issues and I'll probably have some people on the show to interview about those topics again, because we've done it in the past, but they keep coming up. So we'll keep talking about them and I'll keep inviting new people on with fresh perspectives so we can look at it from different angles. All right. So let's get to something a lot more fun. Let's get to my tip of the week. And this is a really practical one. This is going to take a little effort on your part, but it's actually kind of fun. It's kind of cool to learn and kind of lets you do some stuff I bet you didn't know you could do. So the context here is I've been, not about you, but I've been getting a lot more Google pop-ups lately. You know, you go to a web page and up in the right-hand corner, you get this little message from Google that helpfully says, use your Google account to sign in with whatever, whatever page you're on. No more passwords to remember. Signing in is fast, simple, and secure. Click here to continue. And at that point, it wants you to sign into that website with your Google account, even if you don't have or need an account on that site. So there are a lot of sites that will pop up a message saying, hey, create a free account with us and you can save your preferences and personalize your experience and all that kind of stuff. And that usually when you say, OK, I want to create a login, that's usually where you see the option sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook. But not anymore. Now they're pushing it to you, whether you want to log in or not. You're getting this pop-up that says, hey, log in. And even if you don't have and don't want and never thought about creating an account for whatever website you're visiting, all of a sudden now you're creating an account and you're associating your identity with them and you're, you're basically allowing them to track you. So pop-ups are always, always annoying. I thought we'd learned that lesson a long time ago, but apparently not. So Google lately has been really pushy with this. So I'm going to tell you two ways how to stop seeing all these stupid pop-ups. So first up is the, the Google way. So assuming you do have a Google account, which I'm sure most of you do, because most of the world does, you can turn these off by going to your Google settings. And so I wrote a whole article on this. There's a lot of pictures that go with this that are make it a lot easy. And I can't, because this is an audio podcast, I can't really easily describe these images to you, though I'm going to try. But I recommend that you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and you can look at the article and that way you can see this stuff and also get links to some other stuff that'll make it easier. But I'm going to tell you about it now so you know what you're going to find if you go read this article. And if you're a newsletter subscriber, of course, you've already gotten this. It's sitting in your inbox right now. So you need to go to your Google account security settings and there's a link in my article. that will take you right there. Uh, and then in your security settings, you scroll down to this thing that says signing into other sites. There's an area with that label. And in there, there's a 
subsection called signing in with Google. And if you click on that, it'll open up this other window and give you this option to turn off Google account sign in prompts. And that, at least as long as you're logged into Google, should stop these pop-ups. And the way that's supposed to work is as long as you're signed into some Google account somewhere, one of the tabs or windows that you're in, uh, you are logged into Google somewhere, then supposedly on other tabs and other windows, if you've got this enabled, then that should prevent these things from popping up. However, if this is done in any way through cookies and you're using Brave or Firefox or some of these or Safari or some of these other browsers that try to protect your privacy uh, that silo your cookies, your third party cookies, then even this may not work. It's still good to do because that way you're at least telling Google, hey, shut up. <laughs> I don't want these things. Please stop offering this to me. So it's, I still suggest you do this. But I'm going to tell you the more fun and more universal way to do this. And that is by using one of my all-time favorite pieces of software, uBlock Origin. uBlock Origin is a web browser plugin. It's honestly, if you're going to pick just one, maybe after your password manager, this is the one to have. First of all, if you haven't already, just do it. Just install uBlock Origin. You will not believe how much it will change your web browsing experience. It's going to block all sorts of crap by default. Your page is going to be much cleaner, much fewer ads, and it's going to block a whole lot of tracking by default. You really should be using uBlock Origin. There are other ad blockers out there. None of them compare to uBlock Origin. They all have different pluses and minuses. Most of them have a lot more minuses. uBlock Origin is the real deal. That's the one you want. Once you have it installed in your web browser window at the upper right corner, usually is like some icons that represent extensions that you have installed. And there's a little kind of a dark red maroon shield shaped icon for uBlock origin. And you've probably never really looked at it, but at the corner of that, there's usually a little number that shows you the amount of things that have been blocked on this tab that you are in. I'm on a Google page right now, actually. And the number of things that have been blocked on this page since I have opened this tab is 21K, as in 21,000. uBlock Origin is amazing. Okay, so let's say you go to a page and you get one of these nasty pop-ups. And by the way, and this is where this gets really cool, we're talking specifically today about the Google sign-in pop-ups. But this applies to any pop-up including you go to those sites that you start to scroll because you're reading this article and it pops up, hey, before you read any further, sign up for your free account. Or before you can read any further, you must sign up for a free account. Or you've read all the free articles you can this month. Click here to sign up. Or even, you know, just other annoying things. A lot of sites do this when, you, when you're starting to scroll through the article or maybe when you try to leave the page, like when your mouse, you know, leaves the page you're on and goes to hit back or go to another tab, that's when it pops up something super, super annoying. Or sometimes you go to a site and this site always has some autoplay video that you never want to watch. uBlock Origin will block a lot of those things, but not all of them. For example, like when I go to amazon.com and I'd like to look at their deals of the day, there's this little infomercial video that always starts with some influencer talking about, Hey, you got to buy this product today. It's on sale. This is why it's so cool. I don't want any of that. I want it just to go away. This same technique could be used on all of those things. And what it's doing is uBlock Origin has a way to kill, filter, block specific JavaScript widgets and objects. And that's all these things are. They're little bits of JavaScript code that, that are doing these things. And so when you get these things you don't like, you can use this tool to block these things either temporarily or permanently. And so there's two tools we're going to talk about here. One is called the element zapper and one is called the element picker. And it's weird to think this way. The zapper is temporary and the picker is, is what you use when you want to make it permanent. So let's talk about the permanent thing first. So the permanent one is this little eyedropper thing. And you'll, you'll see a picture of this in the article if you look at it. But if you select the eyedropper, all of a sudden, your web page that you're on goes dim, like a, like a, a fog or, or whatever kind of goes over the page. Uh, because it's going to let you highlight something. And so now as you move your mouse over that dimmed page, you're going to start seeing these really weird pink rectangles appear all over the place, depending on where you're mousing, because that's highlighting the top JavaScript and CSS widgets that are on that page, many of which are not visible to you. Some are invisible. And so you'll, you kind of notice that things going on that you didn't even know were there. But if you hover now over that pop-up that I'm talking about, let's, let's stay specific right now with the Google pop-up. If you hover your mouse over that Google pop-up, you'll get a little pink rectangle highlighting that 
JavaScript widget that represents that Google pop-up. And if you click it, you've now selected, selected that widget. Now, this is where it's a little weird. Uh, there's, a, there's a control window, uh, a, an entry window at the lower right of your page that you might not be able to see unless you hover your mouse over it. So after you've clicked that little pink rectangle that represents the pop-up, hover your mouse over the bottom right and you should see a little pop-up window that shows you your filter list. And it will have pre-populated some network filters for that widget. Now, if you want to test whether or not you, you click the right thing, because sometimes it's tricky. These things are overlapped sometimes, and sometimes it's easy to get the wrong one. Uh, if you click preview, it should go away. If you click the right thing, it should go away. And if you like that, then you can click create at that point, and it will create a permanent filter rule that will permanently block that thing from ever happening again. Now, if you click preview and the thing that you clicked didn't go away, then you may have selected the wrong thing. So at that point, you might want to click the pick button, which starts the process all over again and lets you reselect. The other thing you might notice, now that's not true with this one, thankfully. With the Google one, it's all in one widget. If you click one thing, it's gone and you're done. Some of these other ones are multiple layers of things, like the pop-ups that say, hey, before you read any further, you got to sign up for an account. Often behind that is another widget that's dark gray or cloudy or something that obscures your view of the article you're trying to read. So there's at least two things there and they're overlapped. So you're going to actually have to select and create filters for multiple things. You're going to have to kind of drill down. So you use the same technique multiple times in a row, basically. But every time you do this, when you, when you use the eyedropper to select something and you click create, it permanently blocks that thing from ever coming back again. And you keep doing this until you can now see what you want to see or the things you don't want to see are gone. And then you're done and you can close these windows and now they should never, ever come back again. If you want to do it temporarily, like just for this one visit to that page, then you use the lightning bolt, the zapper tool instead. It does the same thing, but it's a one-time thing. And if you reload the page or come back to that page, then uh, whatever you've told it to get rid of is, is going to come right back. So I know that sounded confusing. If you read the article, I think it'll work more sense, especially if you can see the pictures. So check out the article at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Of course, there's a link in the show notes, but it's a really helpful way to not only get rid of these newly pushy Google sign-in pop-ups, but really any one of these weird JavaScript pop-ups or overlays or videos or any other crap you want to get rid of. And by the way, uBlock Origin by itself will by default get rid of a lot of crap, but you could take it to the next level by creating these filters to permanently block other stuff that's not automatically caught by default. So check that out. It's very powerful and it's kind of fun. And that completes our news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, we've already run long, so I'm going to keep this really short. We've got a great interview for you next week. We'll be talking with Vincent Hendricks, who is one of the co-authors of the 2022 book called Ministry of Truth, a reference to George Orwell's 1984. And we're going to be talking about how social media is used to influence us and, of course, what you can do about it. I've got some other really great interviews in the pipeline. I don't want to jinx them by giving them away now. Uh, but well, I'll give one away. I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to talk with uh, Andrea Amico from Privacy for Cars. He'll be coming on the show soon. They've got a really cool new tool that will help you look up your specific vehicle to see what privacy issues it may have. But I've got a lot of other great interviews coming down the pike. So if you haven't already subscribed and that way you won't miss any of them. Real quick, thank you again to everybody who's uh, given those really nice five-star reviews for the book and the podcast. I very much appreciate that. I could use some more, however, so if you're so inclined, I would very much appreciate adding to that list. It's always good to have some fresh ones, and I, the book in particular, uh, since I wasn't able to carry forward the great reviews from the previous editions, I need a whole new, I need a whole new set of them for the next edition. All right, that's going to do it for this week, everybody. So until next week, as always, stay safe out there, and don't get caught with your garbage down.